0: Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are broadcasting today via remote access, so that in light of the COVID-19 health emergency, we can maintain our social distancing and still bring you today's show. Please be patient if we experience any technical glitches. We hope that everyone who's listening is safe and healthy and doing what they can to protect themselves and our communities during this time. Wealth Matters is presented to you by Gasluitz-Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our new website at gasluitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at A State Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Robert Port and Craig Frankel, and we're talking about Do I Need a Trust?
1: And so let's introduce our guest today. First, we have Richard Barnes, who is a founder and leader, of course, at Barnes Law LLC. And we have Caroline Bradshaw, a Senior Vice President and Managing Director for Trust Administration at Cumberland Trust. So before we get started, let's just let our guests introduce themselves and let's start with Caroline.
2: Thank you, Craig. I'm very excited to be here this morning because I really love what I do working with families. And I know that sometimes there can be um, a little bit of a mystery behind what what we do and how we go about helping families. So um, I appreciate this opportunity. I've been working with wealthy families for about 25 years now. Uh, first at J.P. Morgan in New York and Texas, and more recently for the past 13 years here in Nashville, Tennessee, the headquarters of Cumberland Trust, um, one of the first and now one of the largest independent trust companies um, in the country, headquartered here in Nashville. Grew up in the Northeast, um, native New Yorker, um, if you can't tell by my accent, um, but I've lived out of New York for most of my adult life, including some stints overseas. Unlike most of my colleagues at our firm that have advanced degrees, I do not, um, but it's 25 years of uh, the school of human behavior.
1: And Richard, how about you? Well, I'm Richard Barnes
3: and I practice law down in South Georgia, but I'm licensed in uh, Georgia and Florida. I've been practicing about 30 years and I work primarily with, uh, families, business owners, you know, multi-generational, uh, families where, you know, that the goal is to how do we pass down the wealth as responsibly and as sensitively as possible. And like Caroline, excited to be here today to talk about trust because they can be a wonderful vehicle to ensure that what you want to have happen happens after you pass or during your lifetime and and a wonderful tool as part of many of the tools that we have to ensure that your wishes are respected um, and you and your family can be protected so i have a son my wife and i have one son i I grew up in atlanta but moved to south georgia about 20 years ago my son is college age and uh, we're, we're dealing with being empty nesters for the first time and uh it's exciting so Glad to be on here today and glad to talk
1: about this stuff. Let's just ask the fundamental question. What what is the difference between a will and a trust?
3: Traditionally, you know, a will takes effect when you pass away. And up until that moment, it's fully changeable. You can do whatever you want to. You can have 20 different wills all in succession. And a will can contain a trust, but the type of trust we may be talking about today, sometimes it can be created either during life or that can be created as part of a a will. And what a trust really is, is an agreement between you and a third party, or it can be an agreement with yourself, to say, look, here are these assets, here's this money or here's this property I want you as trustee to manage. And I'm not giving it to you, the trustee for yourself, I'm giving it to you for you to be able to manage it for my loved ones. And if you have someone like Caroline who comes in and steps in, they'll say, okay, uh, we are going to manage that money for the benefit of the, of the people that you designate for as long as you've told us to hold it. So it can be for their lifetimes or it could be till they get to a, a responsible age. And so a trust is really an agreement. And sometimes you'll see some people talk about revocable trust, which can be an agreement with yourself. You know, Craig says, I, Craig, am putting this money in my name, Craig, as trustee. And the idea there is just that Craig is going to serve as the initial trustee. But then if something happens to Craig, there'll be a mechanism in place to ensure that Craig's wishes are taken care of or Craig's wishes are respected if Craig were to pass away or to be incapacitated. And what we're seeing is, you know, will can be signed today, but you may not pass away and hopefully won't pass away for a long time. And there's a period of time as people are living longer where they may need a little bit of help and where a will falls short in that situation is that you can have a person who no longer, maybe as sharp as they once were, they could have some you know, advanced age or some dementia issues where there is a period of time where that can be likely to be taken advantage of. And a will doesn't really do anything to protect against that um, so much as a trust which might step into place and say, okay, if I do become incapacitated, this is how I want my assets to continue to be managed.
2: Richard, I think that's a really good um, explanation. and. I'm glad that you brought up the issue of irrevocable trust and what happens as uh, grantor's age. I think oftentimes people are concerned about what happens to their children and their grandchildren, and they don't often think about what happens during their lifetime. The other nuance that I would just like to offer up in in my observation you know is a, is a will is a specific moment in time that that you know, comes to bear when someone passes away. A trust, on the other hand, is a, a dynamic instrument that, that lives with your dynamic family as they mature, as they have children, as circumstances, sometimes unforeseen circumstances, come up. So um, I view a trust as a, as a very dynamic instrument that creates challenges, but also creates opportunities to be able to help families throughout their life cycles
0: so Richard you you touched on uh, one particular instance the risk of incapacity and Caroline has has sort of referenced some others what I'm wondering is this someone comes to you they don't know the difference between a will and a trust what are the um, sort of touchstones if you will what are you looking for when you interview a new client as to where, what, what vehicle, what, what estate planning vehicle, uh, or financial planning vehicle, if you will, might be best for them?
3: Well, a lot of times it it all, it, it really begins and ends with what is the client trying to accomplish and finding out as much as you can on the front end about not only the client and their assets, you know, where they, you know, whether they have property here in Georgia or whether they may own property in Florida or in the Northeast, but also about their family and you know, the strengths of their and capabilities and wishes of their family. And so I think it depends on what they're trying to accomplish, what they view as the, the role or how they wish to pass on that wealth. So if they were to say, look, you know, I'm, I'm relatively young. I have two children and a spouse, then that's a very different discussion from someone who has you know, who's in their late sixties has built a big business and is trying to figure out how to pass that down to their children or, or just deciding whether to sell it or not. And so what I look for in terms of, you know, recommending a will versus a trust, kinda of like what Caroline was saying, is a will's a one time thing. So if something were to happen to you, we're gonna divide up your assets according to your instructions in the will. I'm gonna give my spouse the house and make sure they're provided for. They may get all the assets or I may make the division spouse gets certain amount of my children get another amount. A trust, on the other hand, says, look, here's how I want these assets to be managed over a period of time. Let's let the surviving spouse be the primary recipient of the assets during their lifetime. Let, let her be taken care of. And then when she passes away, let the children be the uh, beneficiaries. Let them take advantage or, or be the ones who get to enjoy the assets after, you know, mama's gone. Take advantage may not be the
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Well, you know, and then that's the thing. Um, you know, it's trying to, to come up with, part of it depends on and how much control the person in your office really wants to have over the assets. If they're comfortable saying, my wife and I have been married for 30 years or my husband and I have been married for 30 years. If something happens to me, I'm absolutely comfortable with them just taking whatever it is I have, knowing that they'll put it to good use. You know, when, when the time comes for them to pass it on. Some people are a little more concerned and say, well, I'm in a second marriage and I love my husband, but if something were to happen to me, I want him to be taken care of, but I want to make sure those assets that I've built over a number of years go to my children, not his. Um, and so in that situation, you know, a trust might be a good opportunity to say, you know, let's let the husband be provided for during his lifetime. Um, but let's also make sure that those assets come to come down to the kids. Cause without a trust, if I just hand you the money, then you're under no legal obligation to make sure that they go to my kids. And, and you know, there's pressures that come from everywhere. So that's another reason. There's a level of control and and the desire to make sure the assets end up in a particular hands of
0: somebody. One of the things that lay people often see, whether it's marketing or otherwise, is, you know, you need a trust, you need a trust, probate's expensive, you don't wanna go through probate. Can, Can either or both of you speak to that and, whether or not that that's actually a reality.
2: You know, Richard, I I will defer to you on on sort of the mechanics of that. I just wanna make a a broader observation, which was a few years ago when the generational uh, exemption amount went up considerably.
1: And and let's just define that for our listeners. That means when you start to get taxed.
2: Exactly, thank you. So when that happened, a lot of people said, well, the use of trusts is going to diminish because there's not that the tax planning motivation for it and in fact we didn't find that to be the case at all and what i think was driving that is to richard's point that um, yes trusts do provide excellent tax planning opportunities creditor protection you know asset protection uh, for the vulnerable so there are a lot of very compelling kind of structural reasons to use trusts. But I think the reason why we are still seeing, you know, the the number of trusts created that we are is because over 50% of Americans have blended families. One in five uh, adults have some sort of mental illness condition. There are personal familial reasons why a creator of wealth, would want to create a structure that you know help protect what you know either they built or that they were blessed to receive from a prior generation.
1: But let's talk about a minute just, just to before we jump in, because I where you're really going is who should be the fiduciary and run things for your family when you're gone. But but somebody mentioned, Richard did and so did you, Caroline, that some people use this instead of a will and I, I know, Richard, you practice in Florida. So, so can you use a trust to pass your wealth and not use a will? And if you can, should you? Well, and I think that's a great question
3: because a lot of times people who are touting trust will say, well, look, you want to avoid the horrors of probate. I mean, like probate is this horrible thing. It's expensive, it's time consuming, it's public. And um, it really depends on the jurisdiction in which you live. In Georgia, probate is not a bad thing. Probate is not particularly expensive. It's not particularly time consuming. I had a hearing with a probate judge here in Lowndes County yesterday. It was a five minute process and it would have been shorter probably had, you know, the the zoom been working correctly. Um, and now in Florida, it is more expensive. It is more time consuming and the process of, of probating someone's will which you know, when people are trying to say you need a trust cause you don't want to probate your will, it's this horrible thing. Well, probate is actually can be kind of a helpful process because it helps bring out, it helps people who have a, a particular interest in the person who died their assets or, or, you know, it lets your children and your loved ones come before the court and say, Hey, look, I don't think this is really what mom and daddy wanted. They had always intended to leave us the, the business. They had 15 wills over a series of years they entered into one late in life which left everything to uh, the neighbor lady that was taking care of them Prob- Probate gives your heirs the opportunity to come in and say hey look I don't think this was what mom and daddy wanted but for most people if you have a uh, will where you leave and everything to your spouse and your children you get everybody to sign on um, as part of the process everybody says yeah this is oh, all I love Dad you. wanted and it's not that bad of a process, not that expensive. In Florida, it's a, probably a little more expensive than Georgia. Florida is a little more stringent in requiring an executor or the, the person that's named in the will to produce assets uh, or lists of assets. We call it inventory of what the decedent had in Georgia. A lot of that stuff can be waived. So I would say it, there's a lot of good reasons, as Caroline was saying about why should you have a trust? It may not be tax reasons It may be family reasons. But I would say that probate avoidance is probably not something that should be tipping the scale because typically speaking, not that expensive, not that time consuming it can be a healthy process to let people who may have concerns an opportunity to raise them. But then, you know, even if you have a trust and the trust can be a way to avoid probate, if, if you got everything into the trust before you died, a lot of the times, you have a will and you have a trust. So even if you have a revocable trust, which says divide all my assets between my two loving children, you're still going to have to have a will if the assets weren't all put into the trust before you died to get those assets into the trust after your death. So you're still going through probate. So it was a long winded way of saying, there are great reasons to have a trust. Probate avoidance may not be the number one and it's not the heart. It's not the boogeyman that everyone or that a lot of people make it up.
0: You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Robert Port and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary law firm of Gaslewitz Frankel. We are talking today with Richard Barnes, founder of Barnes Law LLC in Valdosta, Georgia, and Caroline Broadshaw, Senior Vice President and Managing Director Trust Administration, Cumberland Trust in Nashville, Tennessee. Our topic today is, do I need a trust?
1: Now, Caroline, I wanna jump in with you. You had mentioned about blended families, which for our audience means you've been married more than once. And people who are widowed and divorced, the, the, the remarriage rates are very high. And, and Richard, you had mentioned that, you know, we're talking about, you said when you're dealing with families, you're dealing with multi-generations, and, and the answer of course is, yeah, duh, generations is multi. But, but you are dealing with families, and I really liked your point about trying to help families as they age, because I think things change over time. Where we're seeing a problem in our practice, because we're dealing often with fiduciary disputes, is in a poor choice of who that fiduciary should be. So, so Caroline, let's talk a minute, and, and I'd like to, Richard, your views, who should be the person that we're designating to be the fiduciary, and by that means the trustee, somebody who owes a duty to do the right thing. So Caroline, kind of tell us the thought process as to choosing a fiduciary, a trustee. That's an excellent question.
2: And when you're talking about taking care of a family, you're talking about really two separate issues that come together daily. I mean, they're inextricably linked but you're really talking about the individual, the person, the the relationships, and you're talking about the assets. And what I have found in my, you know, several decades of working with families is that an individual trustee and a corporate trustee can have different strengths, bring different things to the table. Often an individual trustee knows the family intimately. They, they know where the skeletons are, so to speak. They, they understand the family history, and that's invaluable. But what they often don't have is the legal, financial, tax, administrative expertise to make sure that that trust is um, administered legally, efficiently, effectively. And so we welcome, unlike some traditional bank trust companies, we welcome individual co-trustees. And we can work collaboratively to really understand the family's needs, the dynamics, the potential pitfalls, and bring our decades of experience working with families to help facilitate discussions to really carry out the, the intent of the grand tour. So it is not my place to say that one is you know, always preferable over another. But I have observed many instances where individual trustees are bamboozled um, because of emotional ties to beneficiaries. Um, I have seen circumstances where very well-intentioned.
1: So so, where we're, so I hear you're saying you can't actually have co-trustees, and then you say very politely, it's not your place, because, of course, you serve as a trustee. So let's switch to Richard. It is your place. Someone's <laughs> coming in, and, and they're saying, who should I do? And the norm, historically, is it's going to be the oldest, sometimes just son or child. So, Richard, when they come to you and they ask for your advice, they don't want to upset the family. What advice are you giving as to who the trustee should be?
3: Well, and I think this really gets to the kind of the crucial issue that whether you have a, you know, millions upon millions or whether you have a small estate is the people that you put in charge to carry out your wishes after you're no longer able to, or after you've relinquished that right. they're the, that is the, where the estate plan most of the time fails or, or succeeds. If you put the right person in the, you know, right person in the job, then they can make the, you know, they can make it happen. They can do the right thing. If you put the wrong person in, they can really go, um, go away from what needs to happen. And, and what I think I'm alluding to is you know, the role of a trustee is you're, you're, handed this 40 page document. And in that document, you are to glean what the person who put the assets in trust wants.
1: Well, and well, so it takes
3: somebody Who first can follow, you know, who can follow the 40 page document and make sure that they're doing what the person wanted. A second. So you have to be a good reader. You have to be a good interpreter and you have to get, you know, be someone who could go out and get good legal advice if they need it. You have to be someone who can often manage money and someone who can regularly report to beneficiaries. So there's a, a skill set that sometimes if someone were to come to me, you know, a lot of times people are concerned about costs and they say, well, let's make the oldest child do it. Um, but where I've seen the horror stories are are, are in a couple situations. One where, you know, the person who was making the will had two children, one of whom had a job probably like Caroline's. You know, they did paperwork and they, were, they read documents all the day long and they were, they were very good at that. The other was underemployed and didn't have anything, you know, didn't, didn't have a uh, full-time job. And the person who put, you know, when they're deciding who to put in charge, they selected the one who didn't have the full-time job to give them something to do which didn't make the person whose full-time job was paperwork and attention to detail and, and making sure things happened on a regular schedule. Those were not within the, you know, th- those were the kinds of skills that you need.
0: And, and Richard, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded and not reminded, but as we were preparing for this, we exchanged emails. And one of the things you said is trusts are only as good as the trustee you select. Which right. I thought I thought was, was right on point, And, and I will, I I will use that in the future.
3: Well, good. And, And I had a situation where I represented, um, my practice is somewhat unique in that I work not only on the planning side, but occasionally on kind of on your guys side on the trying to clean up or trying to, um, you know, enforce the rights of a beneficiary. And I had a client who was a beneficiary of a trust and the sister, his sister was named as a trustee. Well, the, Terms of the plan were fairly clear. Divide everything in half when mama died, and you know, he was to get half and she was to get half. Well, mama dies and he gets nothing. And when he comes down later to ask and say, hey, you know, what happened? I thought I was supposed to get half. The sister said, Well, there was nothing to divide because mama gave me everything while she was still alive. And so when mama died, she didn't have anything. You know, 50% of nothing is nothing. And in that situation, my mama had done the right kind of planning, perhaps that, and, and, and who knows at that point, you know, but by the time I'm called in, mama was gone. Maybe mama had had a late life change of heart and, and decided to change her plan. But the documents that she left behind, which is what we have to go for it. said, divide everything in half. And it took years to get to a situation where that there was some, you know, and at that point it wasn't half because, a lot of the funds have been gone. and and so what I think, you know, what one of the beauty beautiful things that, that someone like what Caroline's firm does is, you know, while you know as a as a beneficiary you may not say, well, I don't like, you know, I wanted a new Mercedes, and Caroline read the terms of the trust, and and I didn't get a new Mercedes. Generally, Caroline's not saying, you know, Mama told me to give me everything before she died, and so the trust company has now made off with the entire inheritance, you know. So that that is one of the beautiful things, you know, in terms of you've got to have someone who's able to, to read the paperwork, interact with professionals, is a good communicator with the family. And oftentimes that's not the right family member. And there's power dynamics too. if, mm-hmm. if you have a if you have an older son and you're saying, OK, you're the trustee, then I mean, is he really going to be comfortable? Or is he the right person for the sister or the younger brother is going to have to ask him for money for the rest of his life? I mean, and that is a powerful thing to put a posi- put someone in a position of to have to, you know, and and, and it creates some inple- unpleasant family dynamics if you're the one who has to ask the older brother. And Caroline's nodding her head, so I'll stop talking.
1: It, it is the potential for conflict that many people don't realize. So it's kind of why put your mom? Oftentimes, you'll put the oldest child and the surviving spouse as co-fiduciaries. But it creates a conflict that's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. So, so I do want to ask kind of a general question. The trustee has what's referred to as a fiduciary duty. So, so to whom? What does the trustee? Kind of what is the guiding principle? What is a fiduciary duty? And Caroline, why don't you start?
2: It's an excellent question. Um, you know, first and foremost, it's the duty of impartiality, and I think that that's something that. A lot of people don't understand, don't want to understand, but is really uh, very powerful, which is to say that the trustee is charged with impartiality amongst the current income beneficiaries and the remaindermen. So it's a very delicate balance because a lot of children, say, in the scenario that you're talking about, will think, well, mom and dad died Yes, they left this money in a trust, but it's my money. Well, really, it's, it's not their money. And it's certainly not our money as trustee. It is the family's money. And so it's the impartiality amongst the current income beneficiaries according to the terms of the document as well as the remaindermen. So we have to balance that
1: and let's just define income beneficiaries or whatever is the people who get it during their lifetime or only income and the remainder beneficiaries are what happens when somebody dies who gets it at the end
2: yes and you know our fiduciary responsibility is to follow the document as a blueprint for our actions with all of our beneficiaries and some documents are not not created equal um some of them are vague, some of them are contradictory, obviously none that, that you all uh, work with. And then sometimes there are unforeseen circumstances that the document just couldn't imagine and, and therefore was not drafted to give the, the trustee guidance on what, what should happen if there's a mental illness in the third generation or example. So that's where the art comes in Um, That's where the understanding the family, um, the intent of the grantor, understanding the dynamics, um, allows us to walk a a very fine line that's very difficult for a a mother or a sibling to do.
1: So we are listening, you are listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Your hosts today are Robert Port and Craig Frankel with the fiduciary law firm of Gastelwich Frankel. And we're talking today with Richard Barnes, founder of Barnes Law LLC, and Caroline Bradshaw, the leading trust administration, uh, and vice, senior vice president at Cumberland Trust.
0: So Caroline, let me, let me um, take off from your last comment um, on something that's often of concern to people, which is the cost having a, a professional or a corporate trustee. And and let me tell you from my perspective, as someone who litigates these disputes and also someone who is, who is naturally very frugal, what I've concluded is- That's not the that, word we
1: normally use, Robert, but okay. <laughs> Thank
0: you, Craig. My, my conclusion is I, I view the professional fees, the trustee fees, as almost like an insurance premium, because you have someone like you who- can have the skill sets you've talked about, in addition to knowledge of tax, to all the other dynamics that go into this, money management, how to deal with the personalities, the various family dynamics. So speak a little bit to the cost and why it is that it is uh, well worth it to, to uh, hire Cumberland or, or other professional fiduciaries to, to deal with a trust.
2: Right, well thank you. Um, I'll I'll take that on a number of different levels. Um, I absolutely agree with you that um, having a corporate trustee in particular can be a very valuable investment um, and save the family much greater cost, either family dissolution or, or disharmony, poor asset management where houses are sold for, Far less money than they're worth. Income tax returns, uh, estate tax returns are not properly filed, so that there's penalties. I mean, there's. Uh, I've I've witnessed the cost of not having a good trustee, um, and obviously these are all confidential, you know, situations that I I can't talk about in any great detail. But I have seen that cost.
1: So we um, we now agree we want a professional. How much does it cost? Come on, tell us.
2: If if you'll just bear with me for a minute, there's also the cost of family disharmony. And really what a trustee is trying to do in essence is take the place of the grantor in carrying out their wishes for their family. So, you know, kind of a glib response would be, well, you know, how much are, are you worth? You're, you're stewarding the, the family through you know, the shoals of uh, financial and and emotional development. So how much is that worth to you? The other services that we provide are intangible and hard to put a price tag on, like education, education of a, a widow or a widower or grandchildren. We have several teachers on staff, actually, as trust administrators, who have teaching trusts. For future beneficiaries, so that they can. Those are great
1: trustees um, because they follow the rules.
2: Well, (laughs) yes. I Um, mean, trustees
1: generally. I hadn't thought
2: of it that way. Um, But so this is all to say that it is a very big job. I think people think that being trustee is just a paper pusher, an administrator, checking boxes. You know, that is the the least of it. Although that's critical to get it done. Correctly, as we see with some of these IRS penalties that have happened from prior trustees. We start at for trusts under 5 million, our standard fee schedule is 60 basis points, six-tenths of 1% annually. For trusts that are over 5 million, you know, we we can um, negotiate taking into account family circumstance, composition of assets. What really are we being asked to do as a directed trustee? So I, I think if we focus on what the cost is, we're, we're focusing on the tree and missing the forest.
0: But let me let me look at that in a slightly different way. Again, given what we do, the the cost structure that you just mentioned, the way I think of that is that a, incompetent or, in the worst case, a corrupt trustee can cause damage in many, many, many multiples of what your fee structure is, and exactly. that, I think, is the risk reward that, that folks need to think about other than simply taking your fee and multiplying it by trust assets and saying, you know, should, should this be a cost?
1: Let me let me shift a little, uh, Richard, and and go somewhere else. You had mentioned something earlier that I think is very important. You had said that when the the finally the will or trust the person dies and the the fiduciary, the trustee or executor says, well, there's nothing left. So uh, and 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 that happens sometimes because they're stealing or mom or dad spent it all. But sometimes because the people messed up, and we see this a lot when we have trust disputes, which is the property never got into the trust. How do you as a lawyer help them get it into the trust?
3: Well, and I think you you raise a very good point, which is you can have this piece of paper that says I have a trust and this is how I want all my assets done. But unless the assets actually get into the trust, you really haven't done anything. You have a very nice piece of, and a very expensive piece of paper. <laughs> and so, you know, part of my job is, is, is to look at the, you know, is getting to know the client is to say, look let's look at the universe of assets you have if it's a piece of real property then we're likely going to file a deed with the court that says okay you know craig frankel has now placed the property in the name of craig frankel as trustee of the craig frankel trust or you know cumberland trust as the trustee of the craig frankel trust so for real property you probably put it probably for a deed for personal property might have you know like a bill of sale like you were selling something you know like a car or something For other assets that don't have titles and we spend a lot of time on this for wills as well as there are a lot of assets that have beneficiary designations. And so for example, if you have a life insurance policy and you say, if something happens to me, then it goes to my, my son is the beneficiary. Well, I may have a trust that says I'd really rather my son to receive his inheritance over a number of years. But the life insurance company, if the son is designated the beneficiary, the son gets the death benefit.
1: So, and by the way, that's a big deal with yes. life insurance and with brokerage accounts and retirement accounts. The <laughs> beneficiary designations we find typically control, and so you right. don't fund the trust. So, how do you stop that from happening?
3: Right. I mean, and a lot of it's a you know, it's a it's a follow up thing. And, and and Caroline was talking about how there's a lot more than meets the eye to being a trustee. It's not just pushing paper. But it's the same thing with being the attorney that's trying to put this together is to work closely with your clients and to follow up to say, okay, and I have a chart that I use and Robert, I think I've shared it with you. We can include it, you know, as a resource that basically says, here are the kinds of assets that you might have. Here are things that typically would pass according to a will or a trust. Here are things that have beneficiary designations, but you follow up with the client to follow up with the um, provider of the, you know, if it's the insurance company, you come in and you uh, make sure that they've. You have a follow-up call with them and say, "All right, you show me where your life insurance policy now designates the, you know, designates the trust as a beneficiary." Now, there's only so much I can do if I'm paid to put the documentation together, and there's still an implementation that that <coughs> is required. And I'm not, you know, furnishing that service. Then I can provide suggestions. I'm not necessarily accepted. And in fact, most of the time, I. I said look that's really your responsibility I'll help out as requested but I you know you'll see in a second marriage sometimes even the most responsible clients you know they'll come in and I'll say look let's make sure you have your beneficiary designations in order and I remember one time somebody who I would think you know it's very as we would say in South Georgia very ticky you know or you know I might say somewhat anal about these kinds of things coming in you know two weeks after I said look I know you said you've taken care of all this let's make sure you know and the ex-wife was designated as a beneficiary of the life insurance policy craig let me tell you what happens what he, he dies does. she's taking that money she's not going oh this isn't what he wanted oh this is what he wanted you know he he, he wanted it to go x to the new wife no she's going to take it so the follow-up.
0: craig likes to say that that no matter what your client tells you about the beneficiary designations they're almost always wrong and in fact, Richard, uh, we we have litigation involving uh, a, uh, an ex-spouse from 15 years ago uh, who was left on the um, beneficiary designation, and uh, if if we're successful, she's going to get hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, much to the uh, not chagrin but terror of the current wife, and and we see that couple three times a year. So the beneficiary designations are particularly critical. What, what is your advice as to whether or not, um, and, and I guess as part of that, you might suggest that some of those beneficiaries be designated as the trust, so that the trust uh, gets the assets that are then uh, dealt with as, as Carol and Lighter might be uh, directed to do.
3: Right, I think that in terms of, when, when you're looking at a beneficiary designation, let's say life insurance and you have children and you're saying it's a million dollar death benefit and you don't want your 23 year old to get a million dollars. If, if they happen to, if you happen to pass away and, and you know, it's just too early for them to get that amount, amount of money. So you designate the trust as a beneficiary of the life insurance policy and that trust can, you know, do whatever you want, but you can say, look, let's make that the income off those assets available. Let's, Make that principal available if they need extra money, if there's a hardship, or starting a job, or you know, paying for education. And then at certain ages, let's distribute it out, because otherwise, with the beneficiary designation, it's outright. Now, the one thing to remember is that beneficiary designations and trusts work really well together. Um, but where you gotta be particularly concerned is when you have retirement benefits, because there are particular rules about how, you know, you have IRAs and you have 401ks. And when somebody gets to a certain age, then they have to start taking distributions, even if they don't want to. And there's been recent legislation that has, while it's raised the the age when you have to start taking distributions, you just have to be mindful of, okay, this is a, you know, this is a retirement plan asset. Trust may be a great vehicle for it. I want my child. I don't want my child inheriting my 401k outright if something happens to me. But on the other hand, there may be some tax and other in, you know implications and so you got to say trust and retirement plans present special situations so maybe as, as somebody's out there listening say wait, wow, I've got a big retirement plan, love to put it into a trust, but that may be something you're going to have to have further discussion with your lawyer or your advisor
2: about. Right. And and it's such a, a an important issue and big issue that that maybe even an entire show could be Um, dedicated to it but you know I I do just our
1: list of future shows
2: (laughs) happy happy to uh, offer some ideas but you know if if I had a wish list if I had a magic wand you know one of the things that I would hope for is the ability to start to work with a grantor during their lifetime in their revocable trust we can help the attorney and the the uh, the grantor in retitling assets, so we can take off that that burden um, if appropriate. But where I think that can be so helpful is letting the trustee and the attorney, uh, excuse me, the trustee and the grantor have a relationship, and you know get to understand what the intent is, what the wishes are, and you know, it it can be very powerful. I worked with a family where the father of some very young adult children um, had cancer. And as a result, he set up a revocable trust and, and I worked with him through the end of his life. And, you know, it was very helpful for me to be able to then talk to his young adult children and say, you know, your father told me his wishes for your continued education. You know, let's talk about how we can do that. You know, I had weekly meetings with one of the young adults teaching her budgeting because she found herself in a very different financial situation than she had been in. Now her her youngest sibling lives several time zones away and she's still having weekly conversations with her Uh, trust officer, you know, trying to, we can never obviously step into the shoes of, you know, a, a deceased loved one, but if we understand what they wanted, we can try and help facilitate that.
1: So. And you have really done a great job of saying something and we're getting towards the end of the show about the idea of coordination that a trustee, if you know who the trustee is and he or she is experienced, they can really help not only in the transfer of the assets, but setting up the trust in a way it works. So I do want to make a comment that comes common to us, which is one of the biggest complaints we get from beneficiaries who are worried is that they don't know what's going on. And having a professional fiduciary, a professional trustee early on helps alleviate that because most of the time there's nothing wrong. So. With that, we are actually at the end of our show, so let's start with Caroline. If somebody, uh, one of our listeners wants to reach out to you and potentially talk to you about serving as a trustee, how do they get in touch with you?
2: Well, I would be delighted to speak with anyone because as you can tell, I'm very passionate about this. I think probably the best step is to go to our website, which is cumberlandtrust.com. We have blogs, we have uh, links to resources. Uh, we have um, a very good description about how we do what we do and why we do it that way. So I think that's probably the best bet HumberlandTrust.com.
1: and richard, how do we how do we get to you?
3: Well, I think you can look at BarnesLawLLC.com which is b a r n e s law llc dot com or you just Google Richard Barnes Velas Georgia and that probably will get you pretty close. But I can't uh, echo enough what um, Caroline was saying about the importance of having the trustee be on the team. And I would say it sooner rather than later, because as attorneys, we can put together these great documents are or, or great what we think. But Caroline's where, you know, in the day to day implementation, that's where they say this is what we are seeing. This may sound great, but have you thought about this? And so I would say, whoever, you you know, choose to get your trustee as part of the team before everything is signed, have them be part of your financial and accounting team so that the trustee can say, yes, this makes sense. And I understand what you're trying to accomplish. And I think I can give you and your children comfort that this is, you know, this is putting you in a good position for that. Or they can say, "Here are some suggestions based on what's happening in the real world. You know, with real beneficiaries wanting real cars, um, that kind of thing.
0: Thank you both. This has been excellent. As we're wrapping up our show, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gesslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at GesslowitzFrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at estate dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guest is Richard Barnes, founder, Barnes Law, LLC, and Caroline Bradshaw, Senior Vice President and Managing Director of Trust Administration at Cumberland Trust. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X.